0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Today, joining me, Richard Sveresen, is Diana Basila of Alpic, a coal expert, and Trina Broughton from uh, Connect, who is a carbon market expert. Thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you very much, and thank, thank, thank you for the invitation.
0: I'd like to start off by talking about the, the, the developments in your respective markets, because it's been quite a topsy-turvy uh, last six months to a year. So, Dan, if I can start with you and say if you can highlight the main developments in, in the coal market in the last sort of six months to 12 months and what are the reasons for a, a certain downturn in prices.
1: What we have seen is that the coal price has basically fallen from um, 80 to $100 per tonne to $60 at, at, at current levels in the market we see today. And the main reason for this has been a strengthening of the global coal supply and demand balance due to um, a mild winter overall in in Europe as well and in Asia, and also, um, let's say, some kind of improved environment for miners to mine more, first of all, and second, we did not have any supply disruptions in the global market. Mm-hmm. So, overall, everything has uh, pointed or left more coal supply available in the system, both on the stock side from consumers and um, more coal being exported by producers.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean China's quite an important part of this isn't exactly. it Could you could you explain a little bit about, about the role China has in in the, the pricing of European coal
1: The main role that China has is especially related to its coal production domestically mm. What China has been doing in the past 2 years and a half has been to invest more into its mine uh, mines into the coal mines in China and what we have seen is now that uh, China has uh, actually uh, kind of it owns at the moment more coal mines, more advanced coal mines. It's only also available or able to produce more coal. So therefore, higher mining uh, capacity leads to more coal production in China. As a result, the Chinese government also has its own preference. Let's call it for the price they should see in the market. And as a result, each time the price falls out of the ban that the Chinese government wants to have, they play around with imports, meaning they either open the tap or close the tap mm. for coal imports coming from, from especially Australia and Indonesia and other markets. So this is what happened this year. In the beginning of nineteen, the Chinese government decided to put a stop on coal imports. As a result, leaving more coal available into the Pacific market and ending up depressing prices in mm. the area. In Europe, on the other hand, as you can imagine, since less coal from the Atlantic that is supposed to feed Europe is now available overall, ends up with improved supply in the basin. And if you combine that with mild weather and lower consumption, you get the API2 at $60 per tonne.
0: And this Mm. could be set to continue?
1: I would be cautious Mm. in... uh, uh, stating that since now we, we if we look at the level itself, we have seen this level back in twenty fifteen. Mm. But you have to consider where the oil price sits today compared with where the oil price was sitting back in fifteen. That was forty five, now we see seventy dollars per barrel, which is of course supporting the production cost in coal. Mm. So, therefore, I would uh, say that uh, these levels, or um, in a way, are, are very, very close to the production costs uh, that we see, especially from uh, miners in the Atlantic like Russia. And below these levels, then uh, it, it implies that the market will have to stop mining, basically. Mm. We, we should see supply destruction everywhere in order to rebalance uh, the global coal market.
0: Because you had some interesting numbers. Uh, Total market size is about 7 billion tonnes. China produces domestically 3.5 billion and imports 200 to 300 million. Oh. Trina, moving on to carbon now. Not so, so many global factors involved in driving the prices here, but it's certainly been another topsy-turvy year. And uh, I think uh, we're at the, our Fundamental Price Driver Conference and you highlighted some, some extreme cases of volatility now what are, what have been the main drivers in this roller coaster year, if you like?
2: Yeah, it, it's a lot of different factors playing in here uh, mm. for the price development. but I, I would say the mostly the main factor is actually the sentiment and all the price outlooks, predicting increased prices and keeping all the speculative trading activity. Uh, with the increased volumes and positions in this market, really driving the volatility uh, and really increasing the spreads we've seen. Um, So it's definitely one of the biggest factors. But we've seen, uh, of course, the UK and the Brexit development the past two months. Uh, We see the market is reacting heavily to news related to this. And Mm. Um, all the upward movement we see in the past two months is related to the delay of the deadline of the uh, European Brexit mm. uh, or the UK Brexit. Mm. Uh, so, of
0: course- And the downturn has been... The confirmation of the fears of a no-deal, Brexit. Yes, Yes,
2: basically. Uh, So this this political game is playing a huge role in the price development uh, on a daily-day basis Mm -hmm. uh, and also triggering... We see kind of the technical trading activity in this market is heavily influenced by all this activity, basically, and 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 we see these trading levels being broken on both on the upside and also on the downside is triggering further positions. Uh, so um, it's, it's a very interesting market to follow at the moment because mm. it's a lot of things happening mm, and absolutely. just just today it's actually broken the key uh, resistant level at the 26 euros per ton and mm. which makes it very interesting to see the development if it's corrects down mm. uh, within the next couple of days or if we actually go into a new uh, mm. trend line
0: It'll be very dependent on news about Brexit, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, um, of course. But so it's quite interesting here. You're both analysts, but you're saying also that analysts uh, have driven, been part, have, have partly driven this market upwards. I think there was some 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 crazy numbers out there: a hundred uh, euros a ton and 65, 45 So so that that's quite interesting. You also mentioned here earlier, Trina, that the number. That speculators were trading in in the markets, so 160 million tons. You mentioned. Yeah. Uh, could you could you explain that number a bit more? What kind of percentage of the total, or what does it represent on a daily level?
2: Yeah, we see this. Uh, this is, of course, a difficult number to estimate. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to know the exact. Number, because mm. uh, we do have a lot of banks coming in, which are not the traditional compliance uh, market players. And mm. uh, we do have the own um, like uh, traders, basically trading firms uh, mm. and so forth, coming into this market, and also the pensions and hedging funds with a mm. much longer term mm. view on the market, um, with a lot more. Long-term investments mm. uh, compared to the day-to-day trading activity. Mm. Um, so,
0: sure.
2: yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see.
0: Is it is it something you can see in the coal market, Dana? The role of the the you know the the, the speculative uh, players or the financial players? Is it hard to? Because I know there's a lot of banks trading coal and not anymore. Uh, not anymore. Okay, no, they no, moved out no. as well. Okay, they
1: that happened many years ago. Basically, that's why an, we have out of date.
0: <laughs> Shame on me, but they, give, they certainly but they certainly provide a lot of uh, uh, analysis, uh, didn't They They did, but that's why
1: they're not doing it anymore. <laughs> so yeah, again,
0: again, <laughs> I need to I need to catch up here. I need to speak to my colleague Lawrence Walker, and he'll he'll keep me up to date. To him.
1: Basically, in the in the coal market, what we do have are the, the players that are actually interested to do some real business as well. Mm-hmm. And we have not many of them left. That's why the liquidity is very, very low and mm-hmm. um, some trades can actually induce pretty big price changes on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Depending on the presence of those players, utilities, big producers that we know of uh, in Europe, so they uh, they are the ones active in the market. Less ban- banks. Banks have disappeared uh,
0: but there are some big, fi- I don't know if you call them been trading houses, such as yes. the ones who congregate, you know, some Singapore-based or Geneva-based or London-based.
1: They are the ones actually still involved. Mm. But uh, their focus, uh, of course, is, uh, is also uh, spread, let's say, to, towards different commodities, I would say, not just coal. Mm. So I would stick to the, the big producers and the utilities being mm. the, the most active in mm. coal. But liquidity is pretty, pretty low. Pretty
0: low, yeah. Yeah, uh, most
1: mm. of that you have on the front year uh, contract, mm. and the le- the others are less liquid. How about
0: transparency? Because that's been kind of it's been the coal market's been criticised for being quite opaque in the past. How, how does that? Uh, how that is that has, now?
1: Has uh, not changed, mm-hmm. uh, which of course for a coal analyst. Uh, it's uh, still a pretty difficult uh, task to be able to understand what's actually going on mm. go- going on on the ground, uh, since you don't really see many things. And um,
0: but that's why people are very dependent on your analysis, then, don't exactly. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about. Um, uh, you both mentioned the downturn in demand for coal in, in in Europe. Would you say, Dana, that it's driven by the ETS?
1: That's part of it, mm-hmm. especially since um, theoretically, yes, the 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 coal price would be uh, negatively impacted if uh, we have a higher CO two price. Mm. That's the direct impact. But I would say the the main thing that has been, let's say, killing coal consumption in Europe has, first of all, weather, renewable output. And um, despite the fact that, for example, this year, we have even seen lower hydropower generation, which would have implied we should see more thermal power Mm. with coal and gas. Apparently, uh, gas has uh, kind of uh, gained a little bit more, while coal lost much more in terms Mm. of the percentage changes. And the reason for this, I would say, is the fact that the price levels that we see for the fuels today, along with the CO2, has led to a stronger uh, competition between the fuels, especially if we think about the power market in
0: Germany. What are the key drivers here in terms of a day-to-day basis? Are, are they looking at the, the clean dark and the clean spark spread, i.e. the profits from generating coal and gas? And they can vary from day to day. So when you say strong competition, I'm just worrying, wondering what exactly you mean here.
1: I'm mostly referring to the coal-to-gas switching that mm-hmm. we have uh, seen. And where the, the price of coal is located into this switching range, if we look at it in dollar per tonne, we could, of course, look at it in euros per, mm. per megawatt hour as well, if you look on, on it from the, from the gas terms. So what we have seen is that uh, due to the decline in the gas prices that we have witnessed this uh, year mm. in Q1, uh, we have seen stronger competition from gas uh, in the power market, which, of course, puts downside pressure for coal. Of course, a higher CO2 price would definitely be uh, supportive for improved or higher gas uh, power generation compared to coal power generation. But what I would say to, we can witness today in the market is a stronger interdependence between these three and uh, kind of keeping the, um, the price
2: levels within the switching range.
0: So it's more an interdependence rather than one or the other, in a sense. How do you view this, Tina?
2: I think uh, the political side of this is kind of really relevant uh, because um, all these countries having these phase-outs plans, plans for uh, coal. I think this is kind of putting the sentiment uh, in the market and also contributing to lower investments in in Europe. Uh, Mm. And we see as coal is polluting more uh, compared to gas. Mm. Uh, with a uh, lower production from coal, then basically in the long term uh, you would have less demand for u a s mm. and so and carbon allowances, so
0: that could drive the price down. Then, in effect, you yes, mm.
2: in the long term. Definitely. So net coal
0: exit, lower carbon prices. It seems uh, sort of counterintuitive. Um, uh, we've discussed this before on the pod as well. But
2: yes, uh, and uh, in my opinion, it's, it really depends on how the government uh, actually act on closing down uh, these um, coal power plants. Uh, if they choose to actually voluntarily. Cancel the uh, allowances, uh, similar the amount of emissions from the coal plants, then of course it wouldn't be a, a bearish a, no. a factor for the carbon price development. Then it will be more uh, neutral, but of course it's uh, this is really difficult to predict because it's such a large investment for all of those uh, different countries uh, and governments to really do those investments in purchasing hmm. the allowances and then cancel them. Which it's like
0: burning cash.
2: Yes, basically.
0: And what, um, what economics or finance ministry would do that? Right? Yes,
2: uh, and it, it has a really high cost for the government to do this. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it will be really interesting to see the next couple of years which countries actually going for this strategy hmm. and, and who's not.
0: Could I ask you to pinpoint a few where you think it's most likely?
2: I think it's likely that Sweden Mm -hmm. would go through with, with this strategy. Uh, I think Germany will have a lot of pressure on their side to to actually execute this. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit uh, hesitant to exactly estimate the numbers there. I don't believe they will do it for the 100% volume, mm-hmm. but maybe for some percentage in there, mm-hmm. uh, which will support the prices um, mm and of course i believe france will will go ahead with this uh, cancelling of uh, mm-hmm. allowances but of course france don't have those emissions compared to uh, to germany mm. so again uh, we uh, germany and poland uh, for example will be those two nations we're really interested to follow
0: these Poland, kind of
2: discussions. Yeah. Of
0: course, because Poland doesn't really have the choice to switch to gas, in a sense, because it's 90% dependent on coal-fired generation. So I think there's quite a disparity in the options available across Europe in to to switch, uh, to switch from coal to gas, if that's a fair assessment. But you, Diana, you, you mentioned in your presentation earlier as well about the certain amount of greenwashing that's going on here, and some some miners in particular are are mentioning that you know, hmm, no, uh, we're we're not uh, we're not going to mine, we're not going to open new mines because we're going green. But do you think there's something something else going on here?
1: Well, first of all,
0: not naming any names, of course.
1: First of all, we uh, have to consider the the capital flying out in a way. The capital acts. I mean, with mm. miners or uh, produ- producers of coal and also utilities now are facing some eras where the investors are running away from coal, right? As we have seen, even the Norwegian pension fund coming out uh, two days ago was saying that uh, they will limit production of, uh, we put caps on the production of thermal coal and coal power generation. So this is one thing that, uh, first of all, uh, in a way, uh, prevents producers to, to put more money into developing mines. Mm. But second of all, if you think about demand, as you we have mentioned, and especially long-term demand when you, it comes to the coal exit in Europe, when it comes to China, moving away to more cleaner technologies, when it comes to all other countries mm. uh, trying to switch to cleaner fuels or investing more in renewables... Mm we kind of have a consensus in terms of where coal demand is going. And Mm. uh, that's not a very positive trend, let's say. Mm. Therefore, it would be wise for you as a producer to basically not mine more in the front in order to kind of deplete your mines, but wait a bit and kind of distribute this production for longer years as that will give you even higher margins Mm. in the longer term. So that would be... So
0: by saying you're not going to open your mines... You're not saying you're going to give up coal mining. You're just saying you're going to wait a few years until you sell it.
1: You are going. You're basically when you are saying that you're capping your production and you're or you're not investing or uh, opening new mines. What you're saying is that you. It, this basically gives you flexibility to mine whenever you find the price gives you the higher margin. I would sure.
0: say. Sure. Sure.
1: So then um, I would say that all producers should now be more um, let's say um, careful or cautious in not repeating what we have seen back in 2015 when everyone was mining a lot we got too much coal prices uh, were facing a strong oversupply however these days when you see that demand is pretty pretty sensitive to that you would be better off adjusting or being able in a way to to adjust your production
0: we're seeing Obviously europe moving away from coal not fully away um, and the u s mainly due to i don 't know carbon pricing initiatives but also some political moves in the usa it 's happened more because of uh, the economics of of gas where where are the where, where are the growth areas for coal in the world
2: Well, we will
1: still have china
0: and you as an US analyst <laughs> i mean where where can you i mean if, if europe, europe is, is if Europe is kind of you know Dwindling, then. The, where is the growth areas is what's what I'm asking here. Uh, yeah, I can Diana.
1: tell you one thing: I'm not moving to China or India.
0: Okay, futures. that's very reassuring because <laughs> we we haven't had we don't have conferences there, Diana. So that's perfect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: but first of all, if we think about where is the growth sitting nowadays, we mm. still have China, which will kind of keep the lion's share of this market. But China is also investing or growing its uh, its energy balance with other technologies, especially mm. wind, solar. Nuclear, China wants to become the biggest nuclear power producer in the world. And also mm. gas, of course, uh, as we all already seen, has started uh, entering the Chinese market, especially to replace coal during the heating season. So mm. that's what we have witnessed: witnessed two winters in a row. Mm. Other countries would be India, mm. but India also has its own coal production domestically and they're trying to mine more in order to reduce dependence. But countries which plan to grow their economies using coal power are the ones located in emerging economies in Southeast Asia. Mm. And there we have, um, along with India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, we have uh, um, Indonesia, we have Vietnam, we have uh, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, so all the countries, these countries are still basically relying as they can't really afford now to price carbon mm. or uh, to get rid of coal and... Uh, but. Another thing that I want to highlight is the fact that if you look on the plans, plans for investing in coal power plant projects in the future, each year these plans are cut, slashed, mm. left, basically, just because it's much more productive or, let's say, cheaper if you, have, if you invest in a wind. Or in
0: solar. solar. These are very sunny con- exactly. countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So that's the thing here. That's, mm. in a way, the risk going forward that this pipeline of projects shrinks and narrows as we move along.
0: Because the fear of locking in some very expensive investments that a, won't be needed in the, in and the future. And
1: overall, in the future, everyone would have would basically move into the where Europe is now uh, heading mm. into exit and pricing of carbon everywhere, imposing mm. f- carbon floors. But we can't talk about these things now for the emerging economies, of course, but in the future. we have to look on the 30-40 to 30,
2: 40 years. Because that.
0: that's a good point, I think, um, Dana, you... And you mentioned as well, Trina, the, the, the different ETSs around the world. I mean, are we how far are we away from a global carbon price?
2: I think it's in this direction we're heading. Mm-hmm. I think it's many years before all the different market mechanisms are linked all together. Mm-hmm. That's a long way ahead. But we see that all of these national and regional market mechanisms is uh, entering into force every single year. Mm. Uh, in actually all continents, uh, we see them uh, popping up. And of course, uh, when uh, China is introducing its uh, carbon market in 2020, uh, it will be the largest operating uh, carbon market and will have a significant impact on also, the development of new, similar uh, initiatives in, in other countries, for example, in mm-hmm. Asia.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. I mean, if we can sort of finish off by talking about sort of more short-term drivers, and for our listeners, what do you think will be the key areas for the remainder of the year for carbon prices, for European carbon prices?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, of course, difficult to answer, but uh, in my opinion, uh, the Brexit is still a very hot topic, uh, and it could move prices potentially in both directions. Even
0: if it's extended to the end of the year?
2: Um, yeah, in my mm. opinion, depending on the outcome. Sure. Um, of course, if we have a hard Brexit in, on Friday, uh, mm. potentially... Mm. Mm. Then, of course, we could risk of having a large sell-off in the market, which put a very bearish pressure to the carbon price. Uh, However, in the long term, uh, if we see a year from from now, uh, a hard Brexit should actually support prices uh, in the carbon market uh, due to the fuel switching activity in the UK, actually contributing to the surplus of allowances uh, in total in the European Union. So, of course, the, the, the Brexit is really one of the main or key drivers for the carbon development the next year. But I will also kind of mention the, the political framework um, which entered into force in January 2019 with the market stability reserve, which is really affecting the auction volumes and the supplier allowances I think this is uh, yeah, one of the main drivers for the price development uh, also in the years to come, including 2019. And um, uh, this is, of course, a political market and it, it will be reviewed uh, mm. in a couple of years. So we could potentially have changes to the current framework, but at least um, some of the uncertainties we had back in 20. 20- uh, 16, 2017 mm. is not there anymore. So this is really kind of supporting kind of the long-term outlook in this market.
0: And the political pressure is only likely to build further. I mean, there's it, it already increased. I mean, there's already calls on the EU to increase its uh, ambition for carbon reductions by yeah, 2030.
2: Yeah, we see this uh, very clearly in all countries in the European Union. They mm. they are under uh, very high pressure from stakeholders, including environmental organisations, the population in general. Um, so, this is a global trend, mm. uh, and it's especially evident in, in Europe, mm. where they are uh, striving to increase their ambitions and their environmental targets, and, and of course, this affecting um, mm. the price developments as well, and, and the sentiment and the price expectations in the future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Excellent. Perfect. Thank you. And Diana, is it all about China this year or is there, there must be other factors as well?
1: It is all about China. Mm-hmm. And I think we should definitely take a very, very close look at all the policies that the Chinese government is uh, coming out with. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, we should be careful uh, what is going on on the producer side, trying to kind of understand if they really adjust or...
0: On the Chinese production of coal global, or global, on global, global, the global coal, market, coal production. I would say, like yeah.
1: Basically, all the producers, how they respond to the price level that we see today. Because overall, it's $30 down from the beginning of the year and mm. in the end. So there should be something happening slowly, of course, because we are talking about coal. Not, we can't just uh, pull uh, open a tap or close it. It's mining and that that's a, a more difficult or, uh, process or uh, lengthy, let's would say. And at the same time, we should keep an eye on gas, how uh, gas uh, plays out with coal. Of course, the CO2 remains a big, big driver this year and has been both for the the fuels and the power market itself. So I would say um, China, cost of production or producers' behavior to these price levels and the gas price uh, and how coal-to-gas switching reacts uh, combined with the CO2 would remain the main Mm. important drivers to follow
0: twenty nineteen. So certainly enough to keep analysts and journalists very busy. And in uh, Europe. And in Europe, of course, exactly, exactly. Diana and Trina, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, an excellent discussion. and and an interesting debate about what what have been the drivers and what what to look out for going forward. So this is Richard Safferson signing off from uh, the weekly podcast. Uh, Please remember to keep yourself updated on Montel News and we're on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Goodbye.